Hello, everyone. All right. Um, yes, uh, the passage is on the sheets that were in your chairs, so please follow along or on the screen. <sighs> then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let, him have, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. <coughs> So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And the man and his wife We're both naked and we're not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to come together as Davidson students, um, fresh into a new semester um, with all of the challenges and excitements and stresses that that brings. Um, For whatever reason, we're all here. Thank you that you brought us here and that Sid is going to preach a good sermon, and I pray that um, you would help us to listen to him, and that um, his words would be yours, and that um, you would speak to us, each of us, in some way, and help us to have a good rest of our evening, and get to know each other afterwards. In Jesus' name, amen. Back up here. I try this. Nope. <laughs> All right. So, um, thanks, Jackson. Thanks, everyone. Our passage tonight is actually answering two huge questions. Questions that we're all asking. And these two questions are: Who am I? And what should I be doing with my life? Who am I? And what should I be doing with my life? That's what they're asking. That's what they're asking, and that's what they're answering. So in fact, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is, are telling us that they're the more pressing second question, what should I be doing with my life, is actually answered by the sometimes really boring or maybe sort of obvious first question, who am I? Who am I answers what should I be doing? That is who we are, our essence, our nature, our structures, the way that we're individually made. All of this identity DNA tells us what to do with our lives. But this can get really abstract really fast for those of you who aren't into philosophy. 
And so let me kind of bring it down to the ground level, uh, daily Davidson life, okay? Let me just set a picture for you. You're in the lobby of the library. If you haven't been there, you will be. Or you're on your way to class in Chambers. And then you run into somebody you kind of know. You know, the person that like, you had a class with two semesters ago, you kind of sat catty corner to each other, not super close, but close enough. Or the person you met during orientation last week and the, and the flood of names that you had to memorize all of a sudden as a first year. And so you see this person that you kind of know and you say, hello. And that person says, hello back. And then you sort of do the socially appropriate thing. You ask, how are you? And what happens if that person, that friend or acquaintance, decides to take your question very seriously? What if he or she doesn't just say good to how are you, but and doesn't just say how are you back? What happens when he actually starts to tell you exactly how he is doing, exactly what's going on with a good bit of detail in his life? What do you do there? Here, let's just get honest. You're on your way to something. Honestly, do you just start twitching internally? <laughs> I didn't expect this. All of a sudden, there's like an like alarm buzzer that's going off internally. <laughs> right? Like, get to class, get to class, get to class, don't be late. Or like you're, you're going, you're getting behind, you're getting behind. You've got, you've got a lot of work to do, a lot of work. Okay? Maybe that's kind of what's going on in the background. But maybe there's this other internal part of you that snaps back to the, it, it slams snooze in the alarm and says, for once, someone is opening up about their life. And maybe he even needs my help. So please, let's just stop and really listen to him. And so we feel caught in this cross pressure of two good things, don't we? Learning or listening, doing our work or being with a person. Am I at Davidson to learn, to do schoolwork, to get a degree, to change the societal game, if you will? <laughs> or am I here to listen, to be with people, to know and get known, and to make lifelong relationships? Is there a Christian answer? What does Jesus want me to do, Sid? Believe it or not, J.R.R. Tolkien felt the same pressures while he was writing the Lord of the Rings trilogy. He took a break and he wrote an autobiographical short story to process all what's going on inside of him. It was called Leaf by Niggle. To be clear, that's Niggle, N-I-G-G-L-E. Okay? And the short story, Niggle, not like Tolkien, feels this tension of being an artist trying to finish his masterpiece, right? while also at the same time trying to help his literal next-door neighbor named Parrish. You see, Nigel only has a certain amount of time left on Earth, and he has this painting in mind that just keeps getting larger and larger. It begins as a leaf, and it becomes a tree, and then the, the painting gets so large it becomes a whole landscape. And it goes from like a little bit of an 8 by 11 piece of paper to a canvas, and all of a sudden it becomes a canvas so large that you use a stepladder and store it in a shed. But often, right in the middle of his most furious painting, Niggle all of a sudden gets interrupted. His neighbor Parrish has a highly inconvenient but pressing need. He's sick. He, has, he needs an errand. He even needs minor roof repair, and that ladder that he's using to paint the landscape looks awfully convenient to do that. And so Niggle lives his life either secretly resenting Parrish's interruptions, sound familiar? or feeling ever more guilty about his resentment towards Parrish and how he sometimes avoids him. 
So whether you'd feel comfortable calling yourself a Christian here tonight or not, we can all identify with Niggles' split motives and limited time, can't we? Right? We all feel that here especially. We care about something. Maybe it's our knowledge. Maybe it's our grades. Maybe it's our work ethic. But then again, we also care about people, especially when people get vulnerable, when they need our help, when they ask for our time. And we expect Christianity, we expect the Bible to come down on one side, don't we? It's going to tell us what to do. But the passage tonight upsets that notion. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 deeply affirm the goodness of our work, the goodness of our studies. And at the same exact time, Genesis 1 and 2 equally affirm the goodness of spending time with and for others. We see this in God's words to human beings and about human beings in creation. And this mission or vocation for our lives comes from how our lives were made in the very beginning. Okay? So in a sentence, all that is to say, because God created us in his image to be and to do like him. Because God created us in his image to be and to do like him, we're called to love each other in community and to love the world in our work. Okay, we're called to love each other in community and to love the world in our work. So, contrary to the popular cultural perceptions, passages like Genesis 1 and 2 are not just UFC cage fighting matches between faith and reason. Okay, like science at science, is it the Bible, is it the Bible, is it science? Our passage tonight affirms the truth that faith informs reason and reason informs faith. But really, that's not really the focus of the passage. It's not a scientific and historical how lesson. It's not a textbook. Our passage tonight is much more interested in the existential why. Why? Who are we? And what are we to do on this planet? Is what Genesis 1 and 2 are about, fundamentally. And Genesis 1 and 2 address these questions by pointing out four major relationships and then one blessing. I'm going to look at that. This is on your handout, by the way, with the verses noted there, too. We see first in Genesis 1, verse 26, we see God's relationship to humankind, and then each person's relationship to ourselves, to the self. And these relationships help answer the question, who are we? Who are we? Second, Genesis chapter 1, verses 7, 27 through Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, we see Adam's relationship to Eve. This is the first human relationship and answers the question, what are we supposed to do about others? What are we supposed to do about others? And then third, chapter 1, verses 26 through 30, and Genesis 2, verse 15, we see humanity's relationship with the world. And this relationship answers the question, what are we to do about the world? And finally, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, and Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, we see God's over-the-top blessing on all of these relationships. And this answers the question, what does God think of people and our relationships? So it's on your handout, so I know it's a lot, but you can follow along with us. So let's begin at the beginning and look first at Genesis 1, verse 26. And the way God's relationship to us tells us who we are. So Genesis 1, verse 26, tells us that God created humankind in his image. This was God's final creative act, and it was late on the sixth day. That sixth and ultimate movement of God's creation, God had created the heavens, he had created the earth, the sea, the sun, the plants, 
And earlier on the sixth day, God created land animals. There God is speaking things into existence where there was once nothingness. But then, late on creation's sixth day, God does something very special, very unusual. He creates the pinnacle of his creation, human beings. And we know it's the pinnacle because he doesn't create them like everything else. God creates them in his own image and likeness to reflect his eternal and holy personhood. And look, while I want RUF to be a place where you can bring your questions and you can, you can struggle, um, such as questions like, what's the role of God in the beginning of the universe? There's a lot there, right? I'm going to again point you to the fact that I think the burden of this text, well, that's a very valid question. The burden of this text is to highlight that being in the image of God means something. Being in the image of God means something. And in fact, it means two deep-seated things. First, every human being reflects God's worth. We're going to look at the way that every human being reflects God's worth. This means that every person possesses a large and certain portion of God's dignity and God's glory and God's power. Look, that, that seems so obvious to some of us, right? Sometimes that feels really obvious. We live in 21st century America. We take that idea that we all possess dignity and glory and power for granted, whether that's legally or politically or psychologically or morally. We take that for granted. But this idea is really countercultural. It's contrary, absolutely at polar opposite to what was going on in the ancient Near East, especially around the time that the book of Genesis was written. Listen to how one Assyrian king speaks about God's image. And this is centuries after the book of Genesis was written. This is how the Assyrian king puts it. A free man is as the shadow of God. The slave is the shadow of a free man. But the king, the king alone is like unto the very image of God. So that's something new that Genesis 1 verse 26 is saying. Something very new that absolutely changed the world for the better. No longer is it only royalty that reflects the image of God. Every human being, no matter the freedom, no matter their family, no matter their income, no matter their race, no matter their abilities, no matter their job, no matter their gender, no matter their sexuality, or even their present tense belief in God, all of us are equal and deserve respect. And these inalienable rights to life and certain humane freedoms, they are given at birth and they're not earned throughout our life. Okay? Because we don't have to bear the image of God and we don't have God's image. As if we could ever lose it. Like, oh, oh there it goes. God's image. Okay? Oh, so heavy. I dropped it. Okay? <laughs> we are God's image. We are God's image at our very essence. No matter what we do with God's image, no matter what other people do to us, we are God's image. And this leads to some life-changing applications, right? We'll talk about this later, about how, these cha- how this changes the way we relate to others. But I just want to think together how this changes the way we relate to ourselves. How does this change the way you think about yourself? For instance, what if my worth and my personal wholeness didn't change based on what you think of this sermon right now? What if I'm objectively made in God's image, no matter what you feel or I feel about me? Okay? What if your worth doesn't depend on how hard you work? 
where you come from, what you look like, how smart you are, or how fun you are to be around. You are always still imaging God. So we are lovable and worth it based on nothing, not one thing that we bring to the table. We are lovable and we are worth the effort because we exist, because we are alive, because we are in God's image. In the words of Cornelius Plantinga, even on the rainiest Monday morning of our lives, we look something like God. We bear some of the glory of our maker. Do you see how believing this truth would change how we do life at Davidson? Just briefly. Let me just put it this way. What would it, what would it be like if you and I, I especially, didn't have to prove our worth every time we entered a room like this? What if that wasn't an opportunity to say, I'm worth it? And what if when we left this room, what's the next room we're going to, we didn't step into that room saying, how do I make myself worth it? What if that was already God-given and it was unlosable? Second meaning of bearing the image of God is every human being reflects God's social nature. Every human being reflects God's social nature. We see this in verse 26. Look there with me again. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Did you notice that the singular God is talking about himself in the plural? And so in this verse, we get a glimpse of a true mystery, the Trinity. I had a professor in graduate school who told me, if you speak for more than 15 minutes about the Trinity, you're going to say something wrong. So I'm going to keep this very short. (laughs) Okay? God is both a he and a we. God is one substance, but three persons simultaneously. Okay? God is God, and he is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God is a community. He creates us by perfect committee. According to John, a writer of the New Testament, there exists among God's persons a perfect love. So God is a perfectly social being at his very core, even before creation happens. And this is so important. Creation was not because God was lonely and he wanted us to love him and he wanted the squirrels to love him too. Okay, That's not why he created. It was out of the overflow of his interpersonal love. John's Gospel, chapter 17, implies that it's an overflow of his triune love. It's a love that is always pointing outwards, but always inviting inwards into his internal communion, a community of three persons spontaneously dancing for the joy of each other in perfect synchronicity. The theologian Eugene Peterson gives us a taste for the divine community when he says this, God is an eternal community, a radically other-centered relationship, where the father is constantly saying, isn't my son something? And the son is always saying, look at my father. And the Holy Spirit is always saying, look at my Jesus. And here's what's beautiful in John chapter 17 again. Jesus also points out that eternal life, that loaded word, comes from believing in who Jesus is and what he did, and that eternal life is being swept up, even in this very life, into this perfectly divine dance of love. That's what eternal life is. It's fellowship with the persons of God. So here are a few practical takeaways. If God is a social community, and we are made in his image, and long to be swept up in this triune love, we too are social. We too are community-oriented. 
This means by our very design, we are dependent and we long for relationships. Okay? We all desire to love and to be loved perfectly, like the Trinity that we reflect. Okay? Therefore, there's nothing spiritually or emotionally wrong with us that we want to have deep, rich friendships. There's nothing spiritually or emotionally wrong with us that we want maybe to meet somebody and get married. That's not a wrong desire. You see, we are not meant to be self-sufficient islands. God loves enough to build us all so that we might need help, like Parrish from our short story we mentioned earlier, and also that we need to help, like Niggles asked to help in that short story. But look at it. I just want to say this really quick because I think at Davidson this is so true. Like many of you, I am scared to death of codependence. I'm so scared of being needy. I'm so scared of relying on someone else for anything. Trust me. From like grade two onward, the teacher comment was always, fails to ask for help for me. Okay, struggles to ask for help. So, but I'm just going to say this. Some dependence isn't just inevitable. Some dependence in life is good for us. In the words of the theologian John Stott, we are all designed to be a burden to others. We are all designed to be a burden to others. So let me just ask this again. Do you see how believing this truth would change how we do life at Davidson? What if we were okay not to have plotted out our next fiercely independent step in our career? What if we were okay with that? To be confused about our major, to be confused about our internship, to be confused about the next step, even if you're a senior. What if we expected to need help with homework? (laughs) What if we didn't think we could do it all on our own, all of the time? What if we expected to need a ride to the airport? And we were glad to give rides to the airport to other people because we expected them to need them too. So I intentionally spent the majority of our time answering that first question, who are we? Because as you can already tell, understanding who we are leads to sort of understanding what we do. Our relationships to God, our relationships to ourselves, relationships to others. Okay, and so really, simply put, we're to image the plural God and plural community. And we're to image the creator God in our creativity with the world. Okay, that's what we're up to. But what does this look like? Welcome to Rapid Fire, main points two and three. Okay, here we go. Main point two. I love Genesis chapter one, verse 27, and especially chapter two, verse 18. There is so much honesty about how life feels like in chapter 2, verse 18, isn't there? I mean, look, it says at some level, all human beings, all of us feel lonely. We have this desire for completion, desire for fuller connection. We need companionship. We need someone to ease our loneliness. Look, I just wanted to point out, and this might be obvious to some of you, but new to others. Even there in the Garden of Eden, even with God, even before sin and evil and hurt entered the scene, In between walks with God in the cool of the day, Adam is lonely. He's lonely for other people. And Genesis 1 and 2 aren't just honest about the human condition or loneliness. They're honest about the fact that God sees and cares enough to do something about our loneliness. And he recognizes Adam's loneliness. And he does something about it. He moves towards Adam. And he completes Adam by completing us. And he makes a suitable helper or suitable partner, a fit partner, a spouse. God invents marriage on the spot. Okay? But please know Genesis 1, 26 and Genesis 2, 18 aren't solely about marriage. 
They're about friends. They're about family. They're about church. They're about sellers of Catan. They're about putt-putt golf. They're about any time one person comes alongside another person and shares something. They're about any time one person comes along another person and bears something shared. To quote Cornelius Plantinga again, it's an awesome thing to consider that every time you act kindly toward an irritating person, you are imaging God. That is, your giving and serving others, your being served and given to, are all expressions of what we're here to do. Okay? We're here to image God, and we're here to make the world a little less lonely. And Tolkien picks up this point again in his short story, Leaf by Niggle. Um, there we see how Niggles actually desires his neighbor parish and all the inconveniences he brings, even in heaven. It's an interesting thought that Tolkien's doing here. Towards the end of the story, Niggle is in the, put in the middle of his physical painting. His painting of a leaf turned tree turned real estate has become a real life tree and leaf landscape that he is called to garden and to landscape. And Niggle, now sinless and completely selfless, looks around at his masterpiece turned into physical landscaping. And suddenly he deeply desires the company of Parrish and his help. Niggle says aloud, the pla- this place cannot be just left as my private park. I need advice and help. I ought to have got it sooner. So like Niggle, you and I need people to break our striding efficiency. Not just to give us a bigger perspective about what really matters, but also to make our work, our private parks, more public. To make the things that we do better and more for other people too. And so in Niggle's New Heaven and New Earth, that glorious future where our relationships will be perfect, there we can already see the second way that we image God here and now, in the present tense, at places like Davidson in our work. Okay, there's a lot to say about the commission that God gives us all in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 30, and then again in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Okay? And certainly we're like all called to fill the earth with other people, to have physical families and spiritual families of mentors and mentees, but we're also called to work, right? To fill out the potential of what's already in the world. We're called to respect the nature of nature. We're to work with the seasons, to grow and then to rest, to fill and then to empty, to fill and to empty, to work and to rest, not just the world around us, but also ourselves of our labors. So the word subduing here refers to like a tone of cooperation with the way things are, not a tyranny with the way things are. It's working with the grain of the way things are made, the way the natural world works versus working against the grain just because we can. Yes, we work against disease and natural disasters with our technology, but we gotta ask if everything we invent is actually progress. Is everything that we invent, are we just inventing it because we can do something? Or are we doing it, or are we inventing it because we should? Okay? Here's one simple application in its context. The verb subduing, the verb subduing looks like caring conservation, like gardening versus haphazard pollution pumping and dumping, okay? This is what the Hebrew words for working and keeping in Genesis 2.15 are getting at. Working and keeping look like making things better for all the earth and for all people. And not just 
for me and mine and your and your you and yours. But like, how do you do this? So that's awesome. You pitched this huge vision for all the engineers in the room and environmental scientists. How do we do this? It's amazing. We go to college. Do you realize that? How do you know what to do? We go to school. We have to learn how the world is composed. We have to learn what has worked and what hasn't worked in history and in nature. There's this biblical mandate here to take the natural sciences. You have to take natural sciences if you want to manage human life and the physical world with expertise and selflessness. You have to take social sciences and literature and history if you want to guide people and societies for the better. That's what education is for, to help you do what you're supposed to do with the world and to do it well. But aside from cultivating a divine curiosity, Genesis's cultural mandate is what this is called, makes our work an act of worship. We see the value of whatever we do, no matter how boring it is. Okay, this is super important for some of you with your summer jobs in the, in the rear view mirror. Okay, God chose to use, and your work study for that matter, he chose to use swiping cat cards, working in the physical plant, entering data into spreadsheets to provide goods and services, to give food and shelter and love to all people. Do you realize that God could have like snapped his fingers and had it done, but he chooses to work through us doing jobs to take care of other people. And in the words of Martin Luther, God not only uses us, he's interested in good craftsmanship. And here's the deal. Making good Christian shoes, according to Martin Luther, means making durable, affordable, comfortable shoes. Not shoes with tiny Christian crosses on the tongue. And not shoes that are, have huge profit margins only. And this is again what Tolkien and his short story are getting at. You see, throughout his life, Niggle and really Tolkien felt his work, right? Whether it was painting or the Lord of the Rings trilogy, he felt about his work that it was like uncertain of whether it was gonna succeed or whether it was useful at all. And we can all get this. This is what studying is going to feel like if it hasn't already by week three and four. You're going to sit there and go like, is this really going to be on the test? And then you're going to ask a second more dangerous question. What am I going to do with this the rest of my life? Yet, as I hinted earlier, I think Tolkien's showing us that the excellence and needfulness of our work, he suggests that how God's going to fulfill and perfect our relationship to work in heaven's future. Nichols' heaven is filled with his tree, finished, its branches growing and bending in the wind, as Nigel had so often felt and guessed when he was painting it, and had so often failed to catch. And Nigel can only lift his arm up and say aloud, it's a gift. And that scene can only remind us of Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, and what God says over his creation, perhaps the sweep of the arm. <laughs> Okay, and so we transition at last, for some of you, to our final and its shortest point of the evening, God's blessing. So what does God think of his work? What does God think of the people he's made in his image, their relationships with themselves, with him, with the world, and with each other? Genesis 1, verse 31 puts it succinctly, Behold, it was very good. You see, in the beginning, things and relationships were the way they were supposed to be. People were able to be naked, that is, vulnerable, and unashamed, that's like finally and fully free. Naked and unashamed with God. Naked and unashamed with ourselves. Naked and unashamed with each other. Naked and unashamed with the world. Imagine what that's like. But that's not how it is now, is it? You know that with your eyes, you know that with your guts. Whatever you think of Genesis 1 and 2. 
I mean, why do Nichols' relationships with Parrish and his painting need heaven to work right? Why does Nigel need God's intimate and physical presence in heaven to feel fully complete and fully connected, even to himself? And I want to ask, what happened? <laughs> what happened to make us get all defensive and feel ashamed? It has something to do with Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. But more on these verses and the rest of the relationship story next week. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. All right. On a more serious note, let's pray. Father, thanks so much for the opportunity to talk um, about your scripture, to sit under it for a bit and to hear from it and to see how it has some relevance to our lives, uh, which does plenty. And I pray that you, Jesus, would be in the midst of it, that that vision of you at the center of a swirling dance of love and intimacy that's in perfect synchronicity would compel our hearts to draw near to you. I pray that you'd be more believable and beautiful as a result of these words to us, that you'd be um, at the center of our studies, at the center of our relationships, even to ourselves, let alone other people. And I pray, uh, and let alone to you, God. And I pray that wherever we are, whatever we're feeling at this moment, that you draw near to us um, so that we might, by uh, your kindness, draw near to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.